This is the We Are Going Up podcast. We've got the Football League covered. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of We Are Going Up. I'm Mark Crossley, live from the glorious Northwest, and David Cameron Walker, by the wonder of modern technology, is in London. DC, hello. Hello. Um, the season's underway. First week, you enjoying it? I am. It was great, actually. Uh, it's been chaos, especially all the cop upsets. It was mad, wasn't it? I don't know, championship teams going out left, right, and centre. But at the weekend as well, I, I, I haven't really. I mean, this may probably have something to do with the fact that my team are in the Premier League now. I'll confess. But oh, here we I, go. I haven't, I haven't enjoyed a, a, season, a start to the season as much as that in quite a long time. And it, you know, there were some great results in the football league, some great matches, and we'll, we'll, we'll get on to how we watch the, the highlights in, in a little bit. But, <laughs> but as a whole. I was really excited and uh, I think it delivered. It certainly did. Yes, we will talk about Football on Five um, or Football League Tonight, um, as it's uh, called, hosted by uh, George Riley and Kelly Cates, which made its debut to much Twitter chat, I think we can safely say, on the Saturday night. So, uh, yeah, we're going to share our opinions on that later, are we? Certainly, yeah. I think we've got um, a lot to say. Certainly, well, as you as you mentioned, the people on Twitter <laughs> mm. uh, out there had a lot to say. Not and, all negative. Um, not all negative. No, constructive. No, not all negative. But yeah, let's let's uh, let's have a chat. Yeah. Um, also, the uh, ridiculous camera angle at Portsmouth. We'll get a mention later. I'm sure. Mm. We'll go through all the uh, the weekend um, sort of games and or the big games and the midweek stuff. Uh, so that's all to come later. However, we're now going to bring you to start the show this week a feature length interview with an award-winning journalist and author um michael calvin now mike's someone we had on the show was it last season or maybe the season before Season before i think blimey yeah. um talking all about the nowhere men at that point which was his book on on scouting um which is really really interesting that's still on the website if you want to re-listen to that uh, we are going up.co.uk uh, but earlier today dc you have had a chat with him about his new book yeah it's called living on the volcano and it's which is a, which is a quote actually from from Arsene Wenger who writes the forward to the book and and it's all about the life of a football manager what it is like to be a football manager uh, and as you'll hear me talk to Mike about in the interview he he's spent a lot of time with with loads of different managers right from the top of the Premier League right down to the bottom of of League Two and just studied them really and you know spoke to them and got an insight into their thoughts and their processes and how they go about their job and it's fascinating really because uh, again as you'll, you'll hear me talk to Mike about it's it's something we take for granted I think just exactly what these guys have to do on a daily basis. Having listened to the interview um, shortly before we recorded this I can agree with all that we're now going to play it to you sit back and enjoy um, what is life like as a football league manager? Here is Mike Calvin, uh, author of Living on the Volcano, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager, talking to DC. Mike, first of all, thanks very much for, for talking to us. I really enjoyed the book, reading the book so far. And I think for me, what the, the kind of the best thing about the book is that what you've done here is what I think is one of the most important things that a football writer or, or journalist or author can do. And that's you've humanised these managers that we all put on pedestals and, and knock down so easily from time to time. And, you know, you've really given us an insight into what they're like as human beings. Well, thanks for that. And, yeah, I suppose, you know, that was the aim of the book uh, is to show, look, you know, these are these are human beings. They have you know, fears and frailties like all of us. But, you know, the nature of the job is that they have to appear decisive they have to be uh, almost like you know inherently authoritative. 
they have to come up with solutions to problems on a on a daily basis or an hourly basis, minute by minute basis even. And yet, to an extent, because they're in under such relentless public scrutiny, there is a temptation for them, in public at least, to to almost like live a lie, because. Um, Oh, I suppose you know, Eddie Howe put it really well in, in the book where he said, look, I'm not superhuman, but as a manager, I can't be upset or weak in public because the players are looking to me for strength. And, you know, there's that dynamic within the dressing room that they have to almost prove worthy of their authority because players always look at a new manager uh, with very, very jaundiced eyes. Essentially, Mark Hughes said, uh, said within the book, he said, look, you know, I had a good career as a player, but basically that gave me about two or three games to impress as a manager in a dressing room. Because he said, when you walk in for the first time, they're all looking at you, you've got 25 pairs of eyes boring into the back of your head. And they're thinking to themselves, well, okay, then show us what you're about, mate. Are you going to make me a better player? Are you going to get me a better contract? Or are you going to get me a move? He said, it's a very simplistic, almost selfish process. So... These guys in private have to be very, very strong. And obviously in public, they have to be strong because, you know, as you said right at the start, you know, we expect them to be firm and lantern-jawed and quite smart in, in their responses to, to a whole range of areas. You know, football managers, are probably there's more attention focused on football managers than ever before because, you know, in this modern age, which is quite commercialised and you know, cynically manipulated in many ways in PR terms, a lot of players are pretty bland. So the, 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 the managers themselves are expected to be the matadors. You know, there's always that focus on the technical area, isn't there? You know, and the, the cameras are, are basically, you know, right up their noses. So uh, they can't do anything without attracting public comment. So it's an interesting one that they're, they're inevitably guarded and, you know, they, they probably try and create their own little image. And you've spent time talking to a whole range of, of managers from up and down the the, the uh, 72 clubs and the 92 clubs in, in England, rather. And, you know, someone like Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool, right down to somebody, you know, like John Steele at, at Luton. And how much work and time went into to, to making this book? And how much time? Because, you know, this isn't just, surely this isn't just the, the job of going along to a training ground and spending an hour or even you know less in a, in, a, in a manager's company. You really had to spend a lot of time with these guys, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It was a sort of two-year process, really. Yeah, I was really fortunate that a couple of previous books that I've done were well well read within the football management fraternity. Um, did a book called uh, Family Life, Death and Football, where I was embedded at Millwall for a season, a promotion season, from the League One to the Championship, where... You know, I was I saw everything because I was in the dressing room, I was on the bench, um, in coaches' meetings, at meetings where players were let go, you know, the whole nine yards in, in that sense. And that year for me was the ultimate education about football because I learned about the realities of it rather than the superficialities of it. Uh, I then did a book called The Nowhere Men, which was uh, on scouting, which looked at the, the way talent is spotted and then developed and quite often squandered. So again, the managers have read both those books and they were more inclined to to give me the time that, that I needed to write in the sort of depth I hope I've written in, in um, Living on the Volcano. So if you look at most of them, the, the interesting thing is is that football management is a sort of a, a, a battered brotherhood. They all know one another. They're always on the phone to one another. Although they're, they're rivals, they're actually they're, they're going through the same sort of traumas 
on a fairly daily basis anyway. So they, they relate to one another. And it was interesting as as the book, the research for the book sort of took shape, how people were saying, uh, oh, I hear you've seen so-and-so, and I hear you've seen so-and-so. Well, how does he do it then? You know, what's he do? Is he doing anything special? And, and so they're, they're looking for me, if you like, to actually give them a bit of insight about other people because it's, a, you know, a, an insanely competitive profession. When I saw Brendan uh, up at, at Millwood, he was, he was fascinating because he has this sort of very florid philosophical style, sort of sort of Shankly-esque in many ways. And, and, you know, sometimes it does jar. You look at that, you think, oh, come on, mate, you know, speak properly or speak honestly. Now, I think he is trying to speak honestly, but the key to Brendan, I think, is when he really talks openly and with sort of really raw humanity in his less guarded moments about, you know, very personal things about his family and about the way his life has, has been lived. Um, and like anyone in that profession, he has this almost unthinking ability to actually separate the personal and the professional. So as he said to me, he said, look, you know, the last four years of my life have been the most traumatic that I've gone through. You know, I've lost my mum, I've lost my dad. I've slept from my wife for 23 years. I've been through an old Bailey court case with my son who was wrongly accused of sexual assault. But in that four years, I've had the most successful time both here at Liverpool and, and previously at Swansea. So that then sort of begs the question, you know, who are you? And and the answer comes when he talks about his dad. And when his mum, to a degree, his dad, Malachi, was a an ob job ob job man really. He was fantastic with his hands. He used to go home after a long day at work and then you know do something you know, DIY in the house. He used to take Brendan everywhere when he was a you know, promising young footballer in Northern Ireland. And he worked for uh, a rich local businessman. And this guy paid him every Friday. And one particular Friday, he I don't know whether he forgot or anyway he went on holiday and he didn't pay. Brendan's dad and Brendan says I saw the look in my dad's eyes when he, he he knew that for the next week he would struggle to feed the family because he didn't have any money because the guy had gone away without paying him and Brendan said look from that moment on I thought I'm not going to be beholden to anyone in my life I'll create my life and I think I, you know sometimes and I'm sure you've done it yourselves where you have a conversation with someone and a little light goes on in your head and you think, bang, I've got you. And that line, I thought, summed up the the emotional depth of Brendan Rogers far more than, you know, him talking about himself being a, a welfare officer and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think one of the things that, that struck home with the guys was that a book, as opposed to a TV interview or a documentary or, um, you know, a newspaper feature... It infers or infers a certain sense of immortality because it's there. It's there forever in in in, in hardback. It's interesting you talk about Brendan Rogers there being able to compartmentalise his his professional and his personal life because there are some examples in the book where it very much seems like managers have struggled to do that. Perhaps lower down the lower down the the leagues, maybe that's a a sign that they you know they don't have the support system that Brendan Rodgers does at Liverpool. Sean Derry when he was at Notts County, Joe Dunn when he was at Colchester, two examples that spring to mind with me. They very much took the job home and it really you can really get a good picture of just how much pressure these guys are under 24/7. Absolutely. Um it was interesting, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that there is a bit of a brotherhood. And I, and I asked the experienced managers, you know, I said, look, 
I want to go and see a young manager, you know, right at the start of his career. Who would you recommend and who do you think's got it? And quite a few of them said, go and see Sean at Notts County. So I did. And he was fascinating, very, very good in terms of knowing that as a player, he probably was a nightmare to manage. But he knows players because he was that player, if you see what I mean. And he went into a pretty dysfunctional dressing room and sorted it out. I was quite surprised he got sacked, to be perfectly honest. But again, some clubs are difficult to actually turn around culturally. And I think he tried at Notts County and failed. But I'm sure that he will come back as 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 an excellent manager somewhere else. I think Joe Dunn that you mentioned there, he was probably the most one of the most poignant guys in the book because... You know, I'll, I'll put my hands up. I didn't. I knew nothing about him. Uh, of all the managers in the football league, he had probably the lowest profile, and that was why I wanted to speak to him. And what I found was a hugely intelligent, you know, r- remarkably proactive manager, a terrific development coach, and someone who was quietly terrified by the one statistic, which probably for me stands out among everything. You know, we can talk about. 62 manager who changes last season. We can talk about you know 47 of those guys getting sacked and 15 resigning. The one stat that gets me is that 56%—that's more than half—of first-time managers never get another job in management. And I could see that Joe was uneasy about that, and he left Colchester last September and uh, is still out of the game now. I found him to be, you know, and, and I would hope that a chairman will read the book and realise that here's a guy who should be employed and uh, because he's, he's a, I think he's an exceptional guy because here's someone who has that self-reliance that football demands. He, his dad died when he was 13. He left home in Dublin when he was 15 without telling his mum to go and uh, have a trial at Gillingham. Didn't know where Gillingham was. He, he looked it up on a map. Had a great non-league, uh, sorry, a great uh, lower league um, career. Hugely admired for his industry, uh, his clubs. Then you know, worked his way up the coaching ladder. And I, I just think the game is missing a trick if someone like that is not within it. And I found some of the guys that I met in the lower leagues really impressive. Two, on, two to be um, who really stood out for me were, were, were Gareth Ainsworth at, at Wickham and, and Paul Tisdale at Exeter. Different characters, but quite sort of um, not the conventional type of personality you'd find in management. I found Gareth terrific, and uh, it's one of the great regrets of, of last season for me that he was 24 seconds away from uh, promotion from League One, League Two to League One and didn't make it and lost in that playoff at Wembley. He actually was quite dignified. He was immensely dignified during that and actually says, look, you know, I can put that in perspective. We, we did fantastically well, and they did, because I'd, see, I'd seen him, his chapter in the book starts with, I'm seeing him before the season. And he said, look, do you want to understand what my, the reality of my life? And he gave me this piece of paper, and it was an invoice. He'd been on eBay the night before, and uh, he bought a goal net for the training ground because the club couldn't afford it. It cost him £29.95. So that's the reality of the game at that level. Paul Tisdale, again, is a really distinctive character. You know, he spent uh, nearly what, nine, nearly ten years at Exeter. Fantastic coach. I was, he, he applied, actually, for the England under-21 job, and I think he would have done a, a very good job there. But interestingly, he's more sort of culturally, and, and this, is, this is him talking, you know, he's more culturally suited to cricket than probably football because uh, the game demands, that, that game demands a certain sort of introspection, but also 
you know, a technical drive, if you like. But Paul was, was fascinating about the whole thing about what you're going through on a touchline. Uh, I, I got him to talk about, okay, you're one nil down with 10 minutes to go. And he said, look, at that stage, he said, you cannot describe the pressure under because in your own mind, you're picking next week's team as you're watching the game. You're thinking, well, what am I going to say to them press afterwards? You're trying to get this goal to get back. You're blocking the supporters out because that, to use his phrase, fans think about the game for two hours every week and then they go home. He said, I think about it for 16 hours a day. And he said, at that point, when you're 1-0 down with 10 minutes to go, it's so easy to think, well, I want someone to reflect what those guys behind me, the fans, are shouting at me. And what they're, what they're shouting is, get stuck in. So he said, you cannot describe the courage it needs. He said, I'm seeing a guy running around, making all the tackles, but he's doing all the things wrong, and I've got to take him off. And I know the moment I take him off, they are going to slaughter me behind. But you've got to do it. And he said, look, I, all I have to do is empty my mind uh, and concentrate on just one big decision. And that's 30 seconds in 93, 94 minutes, whatever it is. And that's the essence of management making a big decision under huge pressure. You, at several points in the book, you describe uh, the managers as if they're, as if they're living in, in a bubble. And, yep. and I think the book very well breaks down some of the perceptions that we have as, as fans of managers. But I wonder whether you've learned anything about the perceptions that managers may have of the outside world because they're living in this bubble. And is there, is there any sort of distance between what they think of kind of the, the, the whole media and the fans and the modern-day culture from their perspective? You know, some guys are quite sour about the media pressure they're under. Some, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, someone like Mickey Adams, uh, I, I, he went into Tranmere. It was, about, it was a month after he left Port Vale. And to use his phrase... I was bored with them. They were bored with me. Went on a holiday, had a wonderful idyllic two weeks in his brother-in-law's vineyard in the Dordogne. Gets back. He's back at home for a week, and then he gets a call from Mark Palios. Yeah, can they come and help us out? We're in trouble here. It was his 10th club. He probably went back far too early. And the first time we meet, it's in his office at Prenton Park overlooking the car park, and there's nothing in there apart from a motivational poster left by a previous regime, which is gobbledygook. And uh, he's got his sandwich, he's got his cheese and onion sandwich in Clingthorne, uh, where when he was in the um, the vineyard, he was he was eating foie gras and drinking some terrific red wine. So I'm just thinking to myself, why are you here, man? You know, and it's he he talked about that sort of almost like spiritual moment when you when you're in a dressing room and he said, you know, I look into I look in I look at my players and they're looking at me with puppy dog eyes saying, yeah, please help me, please help. So I think that actually gets them. But one thing that Mickey said was that, look, football's a fashion industry. And he said this, the new owner spends all his time on message boards and, you know, reading social media, when actually that's all nonsense, you know, because however well-intentioned, a lot of that stuff is, is, is basically produced through ignorance more than anything else, uh, you know, and, you know, enthusiastic ignorance, if you like, but it's still ignorance. And so I think that's what gets the players, sorry, the managers, is that, that they're judged professionally by people, one, who don't know them personally, and two, probably by people who, you know, to use Tizzy's phrase, football is two hours a week for them, whereas football is 16 hours a day for the manager. Something that, that connects, I think, nearly all the managers in the book, and that they all talk about it at various points, is that 
the importance that they place on the individual interaction with the players and actually motivating them and working them out and and working out what they need to do to make those players better themselves not just as footballers but as people and again that strikes me as something that is so important in football that day in day out interaction that we all have with our colleagues and our bosses and people that are underneath us and again we just don't think about it as fans and as reporters most of the time we we just say oh why isn't he playing a different formation or this player at left back or whatever you know why isn't he signing a new player and really the most important things I think from from reading the book about getting a successful football club is a manager being able to you know really improve his players and get them being the best they can be yeah um, again I'll probably go back to Gareth Ainsworth on this one yeah he said it took him a while to understand and realize the responsibility of being the most important person in the life of his players because he's got the power of of creating or, or ending careers and ruining lives to a degree. And he said, look, you know, I need to um, you know, understand the, what drives the people that I'm working with. And, you know, he makes a really good point where he said, look, some of the guys that I've got in this dressing room have got no families that come from broken homes and they need an arm around them because it's all very well being a football manager, but I've also got to be a counsellor. I've also got to be a social worker. And he pointed out a player to me, uh, not fair to name him, but he said, you know, go and have a look at that guy you know, when, he's in, when he's in a sort of uh, you know, a training context. He said, big lad, you know, young lad, looks really confident, got his shoulders back, he's, he's always in the banter. And uh, he said, you know, that is a complete front because he said, you know, this kid has lost a lot of people close to him in his recent years. And he said, I've seen, I've looked into his eyes and I said, he's a top bloke but all he needs is some love uh, because I can see through everything else. I can see through the bluster. And he just wants to impress someone in his life. And he just wants someone, and that might have to be me, to come up to him and say, mate, I'm proud of what you're doing. He said, that will make him. So there's that, that sort of tenderness, if you like, but, but there's, there has to be ruthlessness as well. You know, the book features when, when, when Wickham survived on the, uh, of the, the last day of the previous season by winning at Torquay. Had they lost that game, they would have gone out of the Football League. Uh, Gareth's career would have been toast uh, on his own admission and the club would probably have gone out of business. Now, they survived. and on, there was a, They had a fantastic party on the, on the way home and that night. And um, the, of those guys on that coach, seven of those guys who were on that coach and in that squad that day were let go the, previous, uh, the following week. So that, so that gives you, you know, it's well done, chaps. Thanks for saving the club. See you later. So it's a really sort of hard business. And, and, and he understands it because as a young pro, he was actually released uh, by Donmouth Kai at Blackburn Rovers on his 18th birthday. And he cried in the car park. He actually, he hid amongst the cars in the car park so that the other players couldn't see him crying. So he's been through that. And so now he's the guy letting people go. And he said, he said I've released pros. And they said they're, they're looking at me and they're trying to keep a straight face. And they're, they're really, really trying to keep on a front. But he said, then what happens is a single tear will run down their cheek. And he said, he said, I know there's nothing I can do to say, look, mate, it's going to be all right. I said, the, you know, the only thing I can say to him is, look, just go and prove me wrong. Another sort of theme, theme in the book is, a lot of the managers will talk about the relationship or the importance of the relationship between 
them and the chairman or the owners or the chief executive, the, the people above them at the football club, people that make the decisions about you know who's the manager. And there are a few. There's a, a, a brief passage which mentions the situation that Leighton Orient were in last year, where Russell Slade was eventually uh, eventually left the club, and we all know what's happened since then. And and in in different circumstances, you talk to Mark Warburton uh, mm. about the situation at Brentford, and you know I think more and more you may well see in the lower leagues. I don't think you're going to see necessarily that many Premier League clubs being bought in the near future because it costs so much. But I think foreign owners will perhaps look at lower league clubs and say, well, we can buy this club for next to nothing. And if we give it a few years, we'll get into the, the land of milk and honey in the Premier League. And that has or could certainly have quite serious ramifications for a lot of these sorts of managers who are lower down the leagues that you've spoken to in terms of whether they have jobs. I think it's already happening in the Championship. Uh, the late Orient one has just been a fiasco from start to finish. I was at a game with Sean Derry and uh, that was when Russell Slade had been told by this spurious football director of football who'd been brought in by the Italian regime, who didn't last that much longer anyway. Um, and he was told in front of his players in a dressing room, which is just not on, win the next game or you're sacked. Now, that next game was against Notts County. At Notts County, I was at the game. And, um, you know, Sean played for Russell. Russell was his first ever youth team coach when he, when they, when he was at Notts County. And so that's a huge, you know, that sort of a person, he was torn personally there because obviously if his team won, actually it ended in a draw, 1-1. But afterwards, you know, Russ acted with fantastic dignity, but he didn't know whether he had a job. And I just thought that was, a, you know, an untenable position to put a really good man in. And, you know, you're, if you read the book, it will be expletive, 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 deleted. But um, Sean was enraged by that, understandably, about the lack of respect shown to a, a really good football man. And absolute inevitability that Orient, like Orient, which was a terrific, warm-hearted family football club, which I, you know, we all used to really enjoy going to, it was an, an inevitability that they were going to get relegated. Um, so to a degree, you know, you sow, you, you reap what you sow. The Brentford one is, is a lot more, it, it's, it's, it's more multi-layered. I thought Mark Warburton handled himself superbly. It was an insane situation. Uh, where he was essentially working his notice, which never happens in football. Uh, and he's, you know, as he says in the book, you know, it's just football being football. But you know, there there was a huge cultural change going on at that football club, and it's still going on. And frankly, no one knows how that's going to end up. My suspicion is that it is going to be a lot more difficult for them to succeed uh, than they think it is, because you know, there's some very good ideas hidden. Uh, amongst a, a real sort of cultural change which is being pushed through remorselessly and I would argue indelicately at, at best. If there's ever an example of maybe how we, we really just don't know what's what's going on behind closed doors and, and, and indeed inside someone's head, it's, it's the example of Martin Ling. Uh, who you start and finish the book with, and obviously when we talked, we talked about him on this very podcast when he was at Torquay and it wasn't going so well, and he left the club, and I'm not sure why. And you know, I look back now and think, Christ, after reading the stuff that's in the book, you know, you just think it makes really does make you think about how you how you view football managers, and obviously the problems that he's had were were, were quite extreme, really, and and you know, it's quite almost heartbreaking at times. Yeah, well, the the, the book. You know, begins the first line of the book is is the electrodes being placed on Martin's head 
of the priory uh, prior to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. You know, he, he showed, I think, immense moral courage in actually being as, as, as open and as clear as he was to me in the book, which is why I wanted to bookend the book with his story, because the first chapter is, is, is pretty daunting and a pretty vivid portrait, or people say it's been a vivid portrait of, of, of someone's decline and, and problem. The final chapter, and then it was, I deliberately called it from, from Darkness into Light, shows him as he is today, talking to fellow managers and saying, look, this can happen to you. He talks about depression. You know, he, he could, he could, it could have happened to him if he was a dustman. And he said, you know, he calls it the, the coffee stain on my CV. And he said, look, you know, if I, go into, if I go into a room with 10 other managers going for a job, I probably won't get it because of that. But I think that's why I wanted to tell his story because a bit like Joe Dunn to a degree as well, I would hope that someone, a chairman looking for uh, a very experienced manager, but also a very good man, a very good human being, would actually look at someone like Martin England and say, well, yeah, okay, I know what this guy's been through. I know why it puts people off. But, you know, I think I'll give him a go. And it, it, he deserves it. He's, he is sorted now. He's completely sorted. He had a lot of help from, from his friends. Uh, Dean Smith, the Walsall manager, you know, is a big friend of him, obviously, because they, uh, he was, he was uh, Martin's assistant at Lake Norian when they went up. It was a you know, he he, he uh, was a really good friend to him, and he talks about how great it is now to see Martin sorted. You know, he's he's working, he's a head coach at the uh, Tottenham Foundation, and he has his own academy, and he's doing some media work, and he's doing a little bit of scouting for Dean at Walsall. So he is sorted, but he is beginning to apply for jobs again. And as I say, guys like that deserve to be in the game in whatever at whatever level they want to be. Just finally, Martin, we could talk for hours about about all the various managers you've. Uh... Yeah. You, you spoke to in this process and you're advisable to read the book and, and get stuck in. Certainly for Football League fans, there's, there's loads and loads of stuff in there, which is really insightful. But I was just going to ask you, you are a very experienced journalist and writer. You've seen it all before, not just in football, across many sports. But going into this book, I mean, what were your expectations? And having written the book and completed it, is, did you take away anything from it where you thought, well, you know, perhaps I didn't, didn't think I'd learn that or find that out? When I went into it, uh, one of the great things about writing a book is when you start the process of, of the research, you haven't got a clue where it's going to end up. And, and that's what I found really interesting, that it took me into areas, or the, or the guys themselves took me into areas where I didn't fully expect to go in terms of, you know, because the mainstream media, they are not as open and they're not as insightful as, as hopefully, you know, the readers will think they've been you know, in the pages of, of Living on the Volcano. It is a strange world. It's a very, very singular world um, with singular characters. You know, as Arsene Wenger you know, says in the, uh, in the foreword to the book, uh, we all suffer, and they do suffer. I was, I was really gratified and, you know, a little bit surprised, to be perfectly honest, how open and, and honest they were. But, you know, we do live in an age of instant judgment, and it's really harsh, and it's, you know awful sometimes you know we all get it um and the example of carl robinson yeah yeah well you know carl you know carl carl's release being you know going for going swimming with his daughter on a sunday morning walking around the lake and being confronted by uh an irate supposed fan who says well i think you know do you i suppose you think losing's funny do you and all carl was doing was having a joke like a father does with his daughter and 
you know, that was just extraordinarily bad behaviour and, 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 and just, you know, beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. But if anyone reads the book and they pause before hitting the send button on 140 characters of pure bile, I'll be happy because these guys, they are doing a job. You know, you can say, yes, they're well paid. Well, in some cases they are, in some cases they're not. But they don't deserve, I think, the knee-jerk vindictiveness that sometimes happens with football managers. You know, they're, 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 by and large, good people trying to do a very, very difficult, some would say impossible job to the best of their ability. You know, And hopefully if people can understand that through reading the book, I'll be really happy. So that was Mike Calvin, the author of Living on the Volcano, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager, um, which is out today, I believe, DC, as we record this. It is, yes, on, on Thursday as we record. So go out there and get it. Uh, from the shops, from Amazon, etc., etc. I don't know whether Audible are going to be doing an audiobook version for you to get anytime soon from uh, audible.co.uk slash going up. Nice. Well done, mate. But um, who knows? Fascinating guy. Mike, Mike's was. a fascinating guy. And I've got to say, especially the, the sort of section there about Martin Ling, yeah, that was a really sort of revealing insight, something that we didn't know at the time. Absolutely. And, I mean, as, as Mike was saying there at the end, if you know, he would like to think that maybe reading this book would make people think twice about posting some abuse to a manager on Twitter or on a forum or shouting it at a game even certainly will make me think twice in the process of doing this show in the future and it will change my thought process in terms of how you know we talk about managers and and it is something I've kind of alluded to a few times over the years in terms of I, I do I do think we we take for granted the emotions of players and managers all too easily because it's such a big deal. Uh, but, you know, you really, this really gets hammered home when you, when you read the book. There, there's so many, you know, great little tales and little insights and little moments. You know, it's a real window into a world that you, you just never get to see. You know, we never get to see behind that dressing room door what goes on when you go down that tunnel after a game. And, you know, that is really where all the, the, the stuff that affects the results on the pitch happens really out of our, out of our eyesight. So it's a fascinating book and one I definitely recommend anyone to check out. I'm looking forward to uh, to reading that myself. So Living on the Volcano, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager is out now. That was Mike Calvin. Right, in just a second, we've got the first week of the season to mull over and Channel 5's brand new Football League highlight show to discuss. You're listening to We Are Going Up. We've got the Football League covered. Right, shall we? Uh, shall we do the actual football first? Yes, do you reckon? Let's. Okay, let's start yeah. in the championship then. A first uh, week of the brand new season and a massive blow for Derby straight away. Will Hughes has been ruled mm. out for six months with a knee injury picked up in the opening game of the season, which was a nil-nil draw away at Bolton. And Derby followed that up with a two-one defeat at Portsmouth in the Capital One Cup first round, with the strangest camera angle I've seen in a long time. I know. Now I noticed last season. I don't know if you noticed this. That camera angle was employed a lot for Portsmouth games on highlights and you know this and that. But on the actual first game they played in the league at home on Saturday, the camera was in a normal position. So God knows why they were back down at sort of uh, touchline level on Tuesday. But I suppose the, the the main thing to take from all that, aside from the good start for Pompey under Paul Cook, is that. It's not been the best start for uh, for Paul Clement. No, goalless draw at the weekend, and then losing to Portsmouth there. I mean, Lee Grant won't be very happy with the uh, with the first Portsmouth goal, will he? But pretty much threw it in his own net. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, terrible news about Will Hughes because really, I think if you'd asked us, what, two years, was it two and a bit years ago that he first sort of broke into the team? Yeah. If you'd, if you'd ask us then, do you think he'll still be at Derby, you know, in two and a bit years' time? We probably would have all said no. People probably would have thought that such were the speculation at the time, Liverpool being the main club really that were interested in him, I, th- I think, from what we hear. You thought maybe he would have gone by now. So perhaps his career hasn't quite progressed as rapidly as people maybe wrongly expected it to over the last year or so. So this this would have been a big season for him in that respect, in terms of, again, progressing and, and trying to help Derby get promoted to the Premier League, uh, as they so narrowly missed out in the last few years. But now, you know, his season is pretty much over. Even if he comes back this this season, you know, towards the end of the season, it's, you know, you still kind of never really get going again till pre-season next year. So it's a, it's a devastating blow for, for a young player. And these days, it's, it's a lot easier to come back from that sort of injury and, and resume uh, your, your career and be up to sort of 100% fitness. But you still probably have that in the back of your mind. You know, there are players who maybe psychologically never recover from those sort of injuries, let alone sort of physically. So it's a it's a big test for Will Hughes and it's a, certainly bad news for Derby and the fans. You know those predictions we made last week where we, you know, Derby, one of the, one, it's certainly my top two to go up in the Championship, Wigan and Sheffield United in League One. It's early days. It's all gone, it's to, early po- it's all gone days. to pot in the Come first on. seven days. Um, quite a few contentious refereeing decisions already on the opening weekend. There was a a goal that wasn't given in the Birmingham Reading game. I think it's Tishabola. I think it's how you pronounce the the name of the guy who shot, hit the bar for Reading and crossed the line wasn't given. And there was was also a handball by uh, Dave Edwards in the Wolves win at Blackburn. Yeah, which was a shocking miss. How the ref missed that, I've no idea. Well, well, let's get onto the handball in a minute. And obviously, there's the obvious comparison to make with um the scenes at, at the keep moat. But um. The, the goal line incident, I, I know Steve Clark's been talking about this and, and you know, you, you've got to say he's quite right, really, when he said that why do we have Premier, uh, goal line technology in the Premier League and not in the Championship? You know, these points, if anything, can mean more to the clubs financially than they would do in the Premier League. If a, if a, if a goal that doesn't get given or gets given incorrectly results in you either not getting promoted or going down or whatever, then, you know, you're talking at the top end of the division, hundreds of millions of pounds, let alone all the the stuff that would, would come with being promoted to the Premier League. And for me, it, I know there's got to be a, a cost that attached to, to putting this technology in and how far as you go down, but I think you should you should definitely have it at all levels of professional football in this country. Well, I think you've answered your own question there. It's purely financial thing, isn't it? And I suppose the comparison would be that... But you're telling me that... I mean, I know it's not the Premier League's responsibility because, you know, it, it's the Football League, the Premier League, but... The amount of money that goes in, how much is it? Co- I'd love to know how much it costs, and we should look into it. But the amount of money that's in the game, mm. you know, surely it's a, it would be a cost worth paying, even if even if it came out of the you know football league central funding from their TV deal or something. Mm. You know, if it if it could be the difference between a club getting promoted or not, surely that would be a uh, something worth looking at. I, d- I don't. You know, know the full facts, but maybe some of the grounds are a lot smaller. Whether that makes an issue, or I'm not really sure how it's all done. Um, but the thing I was going to say was that in other sports, if you think about it, in rugby league and in cricket in particular, they have sort of video technology at the top top level, and then if a game's not televised live, they don't have it. So I suppose it's just the sort of same as that. Is that really? No, you know, it does. You're right. It does replicate in other sports. You know, you don't get it on out on on your outside courts at Wimbledon, do you? And 
and such like so yeah i i understand it's a difficult one but you can you can equally you can understand the frustrations of of the managers mm. okay right a few more quick stories from the championship then mk dons the top scorers in the football yeah. league last season back at it already great start for them 4-1 away win at rotherham well, well on that i don't know if you've seen this today uh, ben mayhew from uh, at experimental 361 oh, yeah. A uh, guy we've had on the show uh, a few times over the years. We should get him on Zoom. Haven't been on for a while. No. Um, he's done some great work, re- really interesting um, little graphs that he's produced, which kind of show you, in theory, the kind of momentum, if you like, of, of the match. So uh, we'll post a link to this on the, on the Twitter. Um, but basically, trying to explain it without you, you being able to see it as you listen to this is slightly tricky. But you can imagine uh, it's like a graph... Yeah, uh, and it and it plots like the the quality of the chances over the time of the match in in like a, right. on a on on a, on this sort of line graph, uh, and 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 you can see the two teams kind of how far apart they are and kind of how many chances they're having per minute. It kind of shows you maybe who's got the balance of power, who had the better chances, who had more chances, and that game in particular, even though the scoreline was was four one to to MK Dons. In terms of the chances that the two teams had and the balance of, of play, according to this graph, they were neck and neck pretty much for the whole match, which is which is interesting. You know, maybe shows that MK Dons were ruthless and, and Rotherham were wasteful. Whereas, you know, there's a few other matches where you look at them and uh, I think the Hull game in particular, they were obviously they were clearly the better team, dominated the match. And uh, so, it's, so it is quite interesting. You can see whether or not the score lines are a true reflection of the performances. Go and check that out. Experimental361.com, I think, is uh, is Ben's website. Two absolute beauties by Craig Noon this week for Cardiff. Mm. Uh, score one against Fulham last weekend, one in the League Cup, and also two great goals in the lead, the Leeds-Burnley game, uh, which is on TV. And Brentford are having their pitch relayed already. Bit it's got to be some kind of record. It? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lost 4-0 at home to Oxford in the League Cup in midweek, which is... Uh, a shocking result. So many teams went out. Like Blackburn lost at home to Shrewsbury. Uh, Bolton lost at home to Burton. Burnley, a full strength. Burnley lost at Port Vale. There's sort of uh, upsets all over the shop. I know. Yeah, yeah. Luton beat Bristol City, didn't they? Um, Did you go to that game? You were, you were talking about going to that game. I was going to go, but I came to my senses, actually. I think John, I don't want to go. Not two years in a row on a Tuesday night to Kenilworth Road in, in August or September. <laughs> Hey, you had a good time last year. I think I'll leave it. Had a good time but, last um, year. Yeah, no, it, just on Brentford very quickly. I think obviously that we know all about their their new model and their new approach, and and they will be very, uh, they'll stick to it, you know, and and they'll be very kind of clear on what they think will happen, and and they're not going to budge. But I just just think that they really need a good start, and and there's two games. They came back well at the weekend to to draw two two with Ipswich after being down the the loss to Oxford. I don't know what the team was like. But um, the loss to Oxford isn't isn't great, and now this match being postponed again is just another hassle they don't need. But I just think if they have a slightly dodgy start, then all of those people that disagree with what they're doing and kind of the traditionalist, if you like, they'll be out. The knives will be out, and you know I think they'll have a lot of pressure on their hands, and they'll have a lot of criticism coming their way. So you know they, they, there's a brave new world at, at Brentford, and I think they they very much need to hit the ground running. Um, one team who didn't hit the ground running at all was Sheffield United, losing 4-0 Oof. at Gillingham on the uh, the first day uh, last weekend. Bradley Dack with a pick of the goals. 
uh, in that game. Also, early highlight, um, so, sort of um, for moment of the season so far, was uh, Luke Daniels, the Scunthorpe goalkeeper, completely taking out uh, the uh, the Burton striker Mark Duffy with a clean elbow. No one else around them in a penalty area. Red card, penalty awarded. Burton went on to win that game. Um, some blinding goals, hat-trick by uh, Nathan Byrne for Swindon in that league. Mm, remains remains Sawyer's for Walsall as a, a belter. But there, there really was only one incident in League One to talk about last weekend, yeah. and that was the... Uh, the goal at the keep mo. You didn't see this. It was nil nil between Doncaster and Berry uh, in injury time, and there was an injury, I think, to Nathan Cameron. So the ball's kicked out. Doncaster have to return it, um, and uh, it was Harry Forrester, Harry Forrester, who yeah. sort of shanked it a bit um, on the sort of half volley from near the halfway line, and it looped over the top of uh, Christian Walton in our goal, and then there was a lot of pushing and shoving, and eventually Paul Dickoff allowed Berry to to walk in an equaliser. Fair play. David. Well, yeah, I think so. I think you've got to applaud it, really, because, you know, Harry tweeted, I think, after the game and or posted on Instagram or something saying that, you know, I shanked it. I've shanked a fair few and, you know, it was just unlucky. But um, I always wonder, it's always something I've wondered when I see that. I think, well, why don't you just, like this sort of devious side of my mind, just sort of thinks, why don't you just give something for the keeper? Just, just a very tiny little thing to think about. I know you've got to give it back to them and just float it back, but it, you know, because sometimes they'll just sort of clearly just knock it on the floor and it's never going to go in. But other times you just just loft it into the keeper and just you never know it might go in and then you might win the match or something. But very unsporting sporting uh, of me to to even think that. But it was good to see. It was good to see that um, Paul Dickoff, who is a good man, uh, let the let Barry get the goal. But it, you, you see, it was quite funny when he was walking through. A couple of the players sort of went up to try and almost mm. tackle him and. It was a bit of a weird situation, wasn't it? But, great, um, great, great! If you had that on BTTS, by the way, both teams to score. You were loving that a nil-nil well, in injury it. time. That's another thing I was thinking about. Or, or there's that, but equally as well. What if Leon Clark ends up being top goal scorer by one goal this season, yep. and you have some money on him? There you go. Small margins. Uh, great result for us, actually, at Wigan in the uh, in the cup. I've got my first game of the season on Saturday against Swindon, sort of a Wagyu derby of sorts against Carlslot. Mm. League two, a few bits from that. Uh, the favourites, or one of the pre-season favourites, Luton got a late equaliser to draw at Accrington. Uh, Bristol Rovers and Barnet both lost on their return to the Football League. Uh, what else? Portsmouth, as we've mentioned, 3-0 start against Dagenham. A couple of beauties from Kyle Bennett in that game. And uh, yeah, 3-2 win for Exeter in their first game uh, of the 10th season of Paul Tisdale's tenure. And, oh, yeah, the first uh, glum post-match interview that uh, Terry Butcher will do this season. I've got a feeling there's going to be plenty more of those to come. Um, so that's what's been going on this week. Uh, oh, but great game between York and Bradford as well in the Capital One Cup, which Bradford lost on penalties, amazingly. Bradford never lose on penalties, uh, but they're out of the cup. And there was also the, uh, I don't know if you'd call it the the Windass derby as such, but a hull against Accrington Stanley. Yes. Of course, Josh Windass, who uh, plays for Accrington, scored at the weekend, actually, coming, coming up against Hull in the Capital One Cup. Of course, Dean, uh, Hull legend, still involved at the, the club in an ambassadorial presence. Um, must have been a proud moment for him, I suppose. Great to see um, Tyler Walker, the son of Des Walker, playing for Forrest as well. Yeah, in their game against against Walsall. Anyway, if you've uh, if you've seen any of the goals from those games, you will have no doubt seen them probably on Football League tonight. Football on Five, brand new for Channel Five this season, launched on Saturday night with Kelly Cates and George Riley. So DC, we've got quite a bit to discuss here. Um, now, the first things to say are that I've never worked in television. As far as I'm aware, you've never worked in television. No. So who are we to say to Channel 5 how to make their show? They make the show they want. 
I think it's produced by Sunset and Vine, who I think are excellent. They produce Channel 5's cricket coverage, which is excellent. They used to produce Channel 4's cricket coverage, which is excellent. So they've got a very, very good track record. But I was a little disappointed. Absolutely. Uh, I must say, on Saturday. Now, I completely get that a lot of the job in that show is getting the goals turned around by 9 o'clock, getting them voiced by the you know the reporters who do the packages together. You've not got much time to play with there considering they're coming in from all over the country and that is the main sort of task and it's the first week and I'm sure it's going to get better but a few things to go through first okay the theme tune for a start right <laughs> better than the football league's theme tune when that started remember when it was just some people kicking the ball doing some keepy yeah. ups so for a start they're one up in terms of the theme tune titles lots of people carrying huge bits of foam into football stadiums for a start those <laughs> those are never fitting free turnstiles Good. And then they get onto the pitch, which is a criminal offence as well, and line them all up. So that's the titles. Then the camera cuts to, you know, to, to the studio. Studio audience. There's your first mistake. Yeah, I, I just, why are they doing it? Like, I don't understand, you know, why the TV shows of that nature persist in having studio audiences. Do they not remember the Premiership Parliament on ITV back <laughs> in the day? They're making no. the same mistake. You know, and um, I mean, I suppose the only show that, you know, Top Gear obviously have a, ha, had a studio audience and were very, very successful, whether that played a part in it. Obviously, that was a small part of the, the kind of the fabric of the show. Um, but I can't think of too many other examples of this sort of magazine start type sort of show in the in the near And what I would say, that, what that kind of where it works, because all it ends up is just gormless men standing <laughs> in the back of shots doing nothing. And what I would say is if you are going to have an audience and you're going to ask them a question, at least give them a microphone. Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> On more than one occasion, they asked someone in the audience a question and we couldn't hear a word they were saying. Yeah. So that's another one. Um, next one. League tables on the wall Ugh. on a, what looked like a massive kebab skewer. I know. Um, wh- wh- surely you've got the VT and graphics department. Just put it up on the screen. It's, it's just a needless gimmick. I mean, I don't know whether there was a production reason for it, but it, like you say, surely just get it up on the screen and have someone talk over the top of it. it that's yeah. all you need to do. Do not try and overthink it. Especially on the first weekend of the bloody season where not everyone's just played one game. Yeah. Um, next thing, Michael Vaughan recorded a bit on Sheffield United. He works for Channel 5 and it was recorded on a phone and you couldn't hear a bloody word he was saying. Um, the font and the graphics, I'm not a massive fan of. And Adam Virgo's little bit, DC, over to you. Well, I've, I felt really sorry for Virgo because there was so much stuff sort of crammed into the show and they were so, you know, trying to flip from one bit to the next, a tweet here, a tweet there, a one minute you're in League One, next minute in the Championship. Fans here, interview with Martin Land. So it was, it was it was quite a busy sort of running order, if you like. That the bits where you went to Adam Virgo and asked him for his sort of considered opinion on the action, it just seemed totally pointless to me because he didn't have enough time to really give you any sort of in-depth analysis or whatever. And if that's his role on the show. You know, it was hard enough on the old Football League show on the BBC for, for Claridge or, or a senior, whoever it was, to, to get too... You know, down into the detail because of the sheer number of games and you know it was just seemed like it was even less here and and he had the added fact that they were sort of standing up he had his iPad in his hand but didn't bloody touch it once <laughs> and and that he just looked awkward and, and, and he, he kept he kept he kept saying as you say yeah um, again and again even though that they'd sort of said nothing about that game and the whole thing of him doing the sort of uh, it's not a voiceover but a kind of commentary on clips of games without a narration, if that makes sense. Yeah. That just didn't really work, I didn't think. And yeah, I just felt a little bit sorry for him. 
Um, and as you say, they, I think I've just said it myself, as you say, they, they, they swapped between uh, League One, League Two, the Championship. I get why they're doing that. It's because, you know, I th- basically, I think with the Football League show, it was on so late that a lot of League Two fans got really disgruntled because they had to stay up till about one twenty in the morning to watch their highlights. Yeah. And, and Channel 5 are obviously thinking, well, we don't... And I mean, we don't, I think it's also it's also a way of uh, a people way to watching keep the whole show. Yeah, watching. of course. Yeah, so you, so you know that you can't just turn on at, at twenty minutes to go and just see all the League Two games. But it's a no- nevertheless, it's annoying. But one of the good things about a show like that is it's a highlight show. So you think, right, I want to watch my team. You turn it on. What division are they up to? Oh, they're in the Championship. Well, my team's in League Two. I'm gonna, you know, I can put that back on in a bit or whatever. So you, at least you know when it's going to come on. Now you might turn it on ten minutes in, sit through an hour and twenty minutes, and you've already missed your game. Because it's in the first five minutes, yeah. and you're like, you know. Yeah. So I just think they've got to put that in a block, just like league championship. You, you do it the way around if you want. Do league two first, and whichever way you want to do it, but just put all the games together. Yeah. And then the Martin Allen thing as well. Um, there was a great moment where they showed in the V2 the Orient Barnet game from the afternoon, and he actually said, "What do you want me to say during it?" And it was like, well, surely they should have asked him about that before they went on. Uh, and and I think as well that if ever if ever there was any evidence required as to why TV shows and TV presenters have desks to sit behind. That was it. The size of the man <laughs> standing there in the middle, completely exposed in the middle of that studio with his huge gut bulging out of his shirt. Make him, Give him a desk and sit him down because otherwise I can't look at anything other than the man's belly. Yeah. And but, I mean, some things were good. Like, I like the fact, I like the presenters. George Riley and Kelly Cates. Yeah, I, I, I think they did a decent job of what they had to play I like with. The, I like the fact they're trying to do something different. And I, to be honest, I don't, one of my least favourite bits about the Football League show, which is kind of ironic as we're kind of doing something similar now, is the bit where they were waffling on about the games because you'd already seen the goals. And I, I don't know, I felt like that there was less of that in a way on this. Yeah. And um, I watched it on Saturday when I was quite tired when it went out live. And I've re-watched it earlier on on the day we're recording just for the purposes of this. And it actually wasn't as bad second time round. So I'm I'm hoping it's going to get better, but it, it was just yeah, it was 100 miles an hour, wasn't it? It was it, it was a complete gear change from Manish. Yeah, and well, they had to be in in some respects because the problem with one of the big problems with with Manish and Steve is that whilst they did basically just show the football and do a little bit of talking about, they kind of maybe went a bit too far that way. It, it just felt you watched it late at night if you did stay up to watch it, and it felt like. You know, they're in a dingy little studio in the basement of the BBC somewhere and you just, oh, it just sapped the life out of you a little bit. Whereas <laughs> you can see, so so thus you can see why Channel 5 would want to write, okay, we've got an earlier time stop, we've got a studio we want audience, we want to kind of breathe some life into this show. I'll get that and, yes. and I think that's a good way to look at it. But I, I, I would say that the main thing I take away from it is that everything you hoped they wouldn't do, they did. Mm. And 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 it does need there needs to be a better balance between just keeping it simple, showing the goals, having a bit of analysis, and and it is hard. It is a difficult, you know. As you say, I've never worked in in TV, but we work in radio, and there are some similarities. And you, you, and I sympathise with the people. There'll be a lot of hardworking people on that program who will have seen the, the criticism it was getting on Saturday night, going home thinking, Christ, you know. I've worked all for all summer on this, and it's been slaughtered. In you know, after week one, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't go too hard on them because it's a difficult thing, and they're they're learning. <laughs> it's a bit too late, learning. mate. We just we just have done. Yeah, no, but we should. <laughs> no, but you know, that's just why we're trying to be I'm Trying to balance it out now, so they're going to get better. I saw Kelly Kate's tweeting saying, you know, week one, bear with us. Fair enough. I think they will learn. And they'll get better, and maybe by the end of the season, they'll have a, have a good product there. But 
yeah, I just think with all sports stuff, really, when you're talking about shows that revolve around action, you know, live sports or, 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 or highlights in this, in this case, keep it simple. That's what we're tuning in to see. The football has got to take centre stage and be very careful with all the other bits that you put around it. You know, don't overcook it. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it this weekend, see uh, how it differs from the first weekend. Right, that's pretty much it from, uh, from us this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter, if you're a new listener, hello, welcome, at Wagyu Podcast. Uh, the Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash Wagyu Podcast. The website is wearegoingup.co.uk. And DC, we have teamed up with our good friends at Audible to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. Now, this is the offer. We kind of rushed through this bit last week, so we'll sort of uh, slow it down for any new listeners. Uh, any new listeners, All you've got to do to take advantage of this offer is go to audible.co.uk slash going up, as DC hinted at earlier. Uh, register there for a free one-month trial, and then basically you can download any audiobook on there for free with no cost. And then if you cancel the trial before the end of the 30-day period, you don't pay anything. And if you've used this offer before in the last 12 months, then you can use it again now, uh, all thanks to Audible. So that address again, DC. Audible.co.uk slash going up. There you go. Just checking you were you know, still paying attention. Um, <laughs> right, that's it for uh, this week's show. Um, not really sure what the plan is for next week yet, but... Um, be sure we will keep you posted on uh, social media. And uh, is it Watford's first home game this weekend in the Premier League? Yeah, we're playing West Brom. You going? Uh, I'm not actually. No, I'm going in two we- uh, in the week after. We got South. We got Southampton on Sunday at four o'clock in a non-televised match that's been moved due to Southampton's involvement in the Europa League. So there we go. Mm. Welcome to the big time. Yeah, Sundays at four o'clock are a thing <laughs> for me now. They are a thing, right? Uh, We'll stick to Saturdays at three o'clock. We'll speak to you next week on We Are Going Up. This is the We Are Going Up podcast. We've got the Football League covered. (laughs) 